0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 27th of May, 2019, and this is episode 115. On today's programme, Dr Alex Mayhew from the London School of Economics discusses his PhD. This looked at the English infantryman's morale and perception of crisis on the Western Front. I spoke to Alex from his home in London. Alex, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Firstly, congratulations on the the award of your doctorate from the LSE uh, a few months ago. Before we start um, talking about what you were looking at, can you tell us about um, yourself and how you became interested in the Great War?
1: Yeah, I I think unlike a lot of scholars who end up researching the First World War, or people who are World War One enthusiasts, I, I don't actually have a direct relation who fought or died in the conflict. But I think like many people, uh, I think it started with trips to museums and most young boys obsession with the military, um, which actually started to dissipate as I got older. Um, It was more fundamentally a module I took in my final year of my undergraduate. I was actually at King's College London, but because of the University of London structure, I was able to take Richard Grayson's Life in the Trenches module at Goldsmiths and... I realised not only did I find it fascinating, but that I was able to engage in the research in a way that I hadn't really been able to do with other topics um, and other periods. And I conducted my undergraduate research project on the relationship between training and morale in the Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry. And that basically laid the seeds and foundation for my, for my PhD project and basically asked, left me asking far more questions than I'd answered. Uh, and it left me much more interested also in the the individual experience of training rather than necessarily the top down organization of training in the military. And so that basically it left me saying, OK, well, now I want to look at the individual experience and individual agency during the First World War.
0: Bring us neatly onto the second question is tell us about your thoughts. What does it cover? Broadly, it
1: looks at motivation and morale among English infantrymen um, during the conflict and in particular it looks at their experiences on the Western Front. It's part of that literature that's essentially looking at how men make sense of the conflict and focuses, as I said on experiences and agency. Uh, in particular it looks at the interrelationship between internal influences so by that I mean interior pre-programmed cultural responses and those might come from military training and acculturation, but it also um, stems from the relationship they still have with civil society, with their families, with Edwardian cultural tropes. And it also looks at external factors. So things like the weather and how these two issues are interrelated. And then fundamentally, uh, the men's psychological reaction to the conflict, both that that stems from their internal cultural world but also um, from their institution and from the landscapes that they're embedded in. So Alex you talk about morale what do you exactly do you mean by that
0: because it can be a rather contentious issue?
1: Yeah I mean there are almost as many definitions of morale as there are books about it. I take a slightly different perspective than some other scholars and probably a slightly different perspective than the uh, the the leaders of the time probably would particularly because actually when they talk about morale they often leave the E off and it is about moral tropes more than anything else. I, unlike other academics, I I see morale and define morale as the process by which men positively or negatively rationalize their roles as soldiers and constructive members of the military. As such, it's interested in the mechanisms that allowed men to make sense and rationalise the war themselves, rather than necessarily. And I don't discount this as a as a legitimate way to study morale, but the ways in which the military itself sought to inculcate inculcate high levels of morale.
0: So, would you would you talk about morale in terms of, of men doing quotes their duty or what the the broader organisation wanted them to do, whether they chose or were forced to do that?
1: I think it's a combination of the two. So, I mean, one of the uh, the ways in which morale is often considered, is, is it coercive or is it about compliance? Um, or is it actually about ensuring that soldiers are ideologically motivated by the cause? And I think it's it's all of these things inter intermixed into a world in which soldiers obviously are responsive to the fact that there is a high levels of discipline um, within the military. But I see it more fundamentally about the way in which soldiers rationalise the war and their war experience as something constructive from a personal level so looking at things such as their their desire to see a purpose in what they're doing and this really filters in to a lot of the literature which considers um patriotism and the fact that the war is generally conceived of as a defensive uh, de- a war of defensive patriotism where you're defending your way of life or your homeland but i then take a, a longer term perspective and i look at the ways for example that soldiers see their war experience as something that will be fundamental to their futures as well, which is something they're obsessed by. Uh, so I look at, for example, the way in which character references become something fundamental to their experience. So these come alongside their demobilization certificates, but they're also aware of the fact that they're constantly being watched, essentially, during the war. Obviously, they're not constantly being watched, but it becomes a slight Foucaultian panopticon. They, they feel that they are. And that their performance, um, which is defined by the military, so their respectability um, and the fact that they're acting in a way that's uh, acceptable in military terms is is fed back to them, but is also something that will influence those character references they get in the future. So in this way, military service becomes something that's not only important for the present, but also something that's incredibly important for their futures.
0: So when you talk about... So your study looks at some um, British infantrymen. Why did you choose this group because it potentially is quite a large a body to choose from rather than, mm. a, for instance, a specific unit or a region? So I I look at English infantrymen
1: because actually it started off as a study that was trying to do something too broad in terms of taking British soldiers as a as a whole category and what I found is that identity became so important to my study that that would just be too broad. Um, Englishness in itself was a diverse set of very local, parochial or specific identities that then made up and contributed to an overarching sense of Englishness and then Britishness. And there was also obviously the importance of the relationship that men had with the empire. And I did actually choose to look at a selection of regiments, but not in the way that traditional military history would. So taking a unit and following its experience of the war, but using them as a, a case study for identity. So I look at uh, the ox and bucks Light like infantry, infantry, which actually stem from my undergraduate research. I look at the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. I look at the Royal Fusiliers who are a slightly more complex entity because they start off being predominantly London based battalions, but actually become one that's uh, more, more holistic and includes people from overseas. Even um, I look at the Devonshire Regiment, I look at the Border Regiment, and I also look at the Manchester Regiment. So what that allows me to do is to draw on uh not every region of the united of, of england but to look at regional regionally specific identities in these regiments and you find that the local and the region actually have a huge um a huge resilience within these units so quite frequently there's a, there's a debate about the extent to which county regiments actually maintain their identities during the war and having done a, a reasonable amount of demographic analysis of certain units and i know that other scholars such as uh, Mark Connolly and Helen McCartney have found similar things in the Liverpool Territorials and the Buffs. The despite the stresses of war and despite the losses incurred on the Western Front, there is a strong regional and local core in each of these regiments, even in 1918. And in fact with the Manchester Regiment and even the Royal Warwickshire Regiment, which draw in large urban areas, uh, they actually increased the proportion of local men that are in their battalions. Um, I'm talking about battalions serving on the Western Front, which is what I focused on. And this then not only feeds into the way the regiment sees itself, but also in the way that even those men not from those areas see themselves. So the vast majority of the trench journals I've looked at for these regiments have a very specific vision of England. Um, and one that often draws upon the landscapes of home, so those landscapes of the West Country, those landscapes of Sussex, if it's a Sussex battalion, um, or even urban areas where they have very sanitised visions of um, what uh, Paul Redmond's called the shock landscapes, but might more or ad- more adequately called the the industrial might, um, or even just home um, of uh, of England. And this then even influences the way they act on the Western Front, which I found really fascinating. And this this is as I said it became more and more about identity as I went on. And I, I think one of the classic examples is the Devonshire Regiment, who after the losses they incur at the beginning of the Battle of the Somme, they build very quickly, construct a, a, a grave um, or a cemetery, at Mansell Copse, um, pretty much slap bang on the, what were the front lines. And what they do there is they level it out and they try and um, eradicate the, the battle site from the landscape. And instead of just creating a cemetery using um, what materials were available to them at the time, they, they talked to the Grave Registration Unit and they say, look, we, we want to plant Devonshire flowers here. So what you have is actually those local landscapes even being utilized on the Western Front themselves. And those local identities, I think, also make the war an even more personal thing. So when we consider Englishness, not necessarily as an ideology, but as an emotional and performative patriotism, it means that actually when you're defending your way of life, when that way of life is so personal, it becomes something that you need to defend. And if you genuinely feel that your country is at risk of defeat, um, and I think this actually becomes very important in March 1918, um, when you genuinely believe that something threatens that way of life, you are gonna defend it with everything that you have. Um, And it's interesting, I think, to note as well that politics plays a relatively small part in this identity, Uh, not only because the state is a very abstract thing in Edwardian Britain, and not only because uh, many of the soldiers who are fighting through age and also socioeconomic background had never engaged in mass politics, though some of them might have engaged in trade unionism, but the army itself Uh, It's consciously apolitical. I I know Hugh Strawns found evidence of generals interfering in politics, but at at the most basic level, it doesn't want its soldiers to have a political identity. And they even have debates during the war as, as to whether or not it's permissible for MPs serving in khaki to actually comment on policy anymore. And as such, politics doesn't really come into this. And... I wonder, and I think this is something that would be interesting for me or another scholar to investigate in the future in a more comparative study, is whether or not actually political identities are less resilient than these more emotive, parochial and specific visions of your homeland, um, which actually probably aren't as threatened by the, the changes and developments during a conflict. Uh, they're, they're much more static and fundamental than, say, your allegiance to a political
0: party or a political movement might be. What is new in your examination of soldier morale during the Great War on the Western Front? I think that you have to be careful sometimes,
1: particularly when you're studying morale, because we all use very different documents. Uh, And so it would be wrong to say that I'm offering a new wholesale theory of morale, which supplants everything else. But it contributes to. So it particularly draws on the work of... um, going back all the way to Gary Sheffield's work on Deference and Paternalism, but more recently on Alex Watson's work, particularly looking at the the social and psychological dimensions of morale, and even Ross Wilson's work, which looks at the relationship that soldiers have uh, with the landscapes that they com- that confront them on the Western Front. What it does that's new, I think, is firstly, it engages with a very broad array of what we call ego documents so letters diaries soldier, soldiers journals um, i look at about 270 men across the regiments that I, i've chosen and then the the other dynamic which is new is i, I try and do this in a interdisciplinary way uh, i'm lucky that I, I teach social science at the lsc so i am confronted with and exposed to interdisciplinary theory on a weekly basis uh, that really helps me draw together many of the ideas that i was um, I was that were occurring to me as I was doing my research and I think that, that the newest things are the fact that I focus on um, the soldiers experience and how this can tell us about the inherent adaptability and endurance of the soldiers on the Western Front and I draw on uh, theory from sociology anthropology social psychology um, in particular ideas like bounded rationality familiarization habituation normalization um, resilience Um, and things like place attachment, to try and analyze morale beyond many of the factors that are traditionally associated with it. Um, So I look at how social norms, for example, constrain soldiers' interpretations of their army life And these are drawn both from the army as a social institution but also from wider edwardian society so really fundamental dimensions of edwardian society such as respectability i also look at the physical landscape and within this there is slightly new theme so for example i investigate the experience of winter as both a, a physical experience and an emotional one so the way in which actually food doesn't reach the front lines um, with the same rapidity as it might in summer months. Uh, and so hunger is a huge issue, but also fundamentally just living in trenches that have water up to your up to your thighs. And one must remember that even when you go to rest areas at this time, of the year, I mean, it's amazing that soldiers can conceive actually of winter is the worst part of their military experience, aside even from battle. Um, just because it's inescapable, even when you go back to the reserve lines, unless you're very lucky and you've been put up in a chateau as, as your billet, you're in sodden trench lines where the water even comes into your trench, um, sorry, not trench lines, in, in sodden um, tent lines where the water might come into your tents. Um, and I also look at the relationship that soldiers have with the physical landscape. So one of the things I try and investigate is the way that soldiers become attached to the Western Front, both through familiarization. And I think this is this is fundamental and something that's probably quite unique in British military history is the fact that you have a, a siege essentially, which lasts for so long that soldiers do become accustomed to um, and as Chris has said, become essentially Bethlanders. They, they create an identity that's embedded in that landscape. Um, And I look at actually how they develop this relationship, so both through the emotional um, connection they have with the dead. So the fact that the the Western Front essentially becomes a patchwork of different cemeteries, even as the war is occurring, to the fact that they're actually just, they normalize the sites that they confront. And that doesn't make the front lines any more, any less horrific, but it it does become familiar, and it allows you to cope with those things. And then, as I said, like individual psychology is also essentially the focus of much of my work. So looking at how individuals respond to the conflict and looking, for example, in the final chapter of my thesis, I look at hope and how soldiers construct the future, but in the chapter preceding that, I also look at imagination and how they maintain their relationship with home through their own imaginative impulses. And I think at the the basis of my, my research is, just this focus on the inherent adaptability of humankind, which I think is a theme that recurs through human history and helps us to explain many things from migration to conflict.
0: So how do you think morale changed over the course of the war?
1: Mm, I think this is a really interesting question, because I think one of some, sometimes one of the problems with something as complex as morale is, as we try and, to un- try and understand its complexity, we ignore the fact that it's not a static entity. So in the British army in particular, you move from an army predominantly of regulars and reservists. And I mean, and that's an interesting dynamic in itself, I think. So regulars have a, a very different interpretation of their service and their professional identity to reservists, who are very much embedded back in civil society um, to one which is primarily composed of civilians. So the army itself has to change in response to this. And it, it does so sometimes too slowly, but it certainly does. so. Uh, I mean, there is a lot of research into the way that discipline changes as the soldiers themselves become, um, become civilians and how the expectations of those soldiers change. And I think the easiest way to trace that as a scholar of morale is if you're looking actually at the few censorship reports that have been handed down to us, um, unfortunately very few of them have, which makes our job very difficult. But if you look at these, you can actually see how at the beginning of the war, where censorship was predominantly interested in redacting key information from letters, it becomes much more about the soldiers and individuals and their individual motivations, and considering them not as automatons, but as individuals with uh, a deep link to civil society. So, I mean, many people have studied Captain Hardy's papers at the Imperial War Museum, and the fact that he is actually producing thematic reports by 1916, end of 1916, about the the state of soldiers' morale, but also how they um, are interpreting the war as a as a personal conflict, really shows how the army changes its perspective. And what you find as well as the army changes its perspective. It is in response to a change, the changing nature of the soldiers as individuals. So, as I mentioned, regulars have this very professional identity. And while scholars have pointed to there being some sort of crisis at the end of 1914, that professional identity is important. And interestingly, when you read any of the soldiers' uh, references to poor discipline, particularly in the retreat from Mons, they often blame the reservists because they don't still have that professional identity. Um, and they can describe things in a very clinical way, which you which you don't find in later years. So, for example, there's a there's a sergeant that I reference in the Royal Fusiliers, Sergeant Osborne, who is engaged in still in the open warfare of the early months and just describes in a very clinical fashion how he shot dead three men. And it's because that's just part of his identity. But there's also an expectation that those men have a, a certain adaptability within themselves. So, for example, in that retreat from Mons, it's not a. Uh, an incoherent idea that those men can fall out and make their own way back um, to their unit. Um, It's a necessary function of their their own individual ability. What you find then as the war goes on is that this professional identity begins to um, disappear, but it's replaced by this, this emotive patriotism that I mentioned earlier, but also by an idea that duty is finite in a way that it wasn't previously. I'm talking here about the, uh, the rank and file in particular. So the military themselves define their service as finite um, and the men themselves then start talking about doing their bit so there is an idea that once you've done your bit, that should be enough. And it does filter into the way that men re- interact with one another. So uh, I found several occasions where a soldier will return to the Western Front after having been injured. And one of the sergeants will put him on what they call a soft job um, because he had already served. So there should be they work with that idea. And actually soldiers become very embittered if uh, their officers or their NCOs don't see that they're deserving of having a soft job. And this idea of doing one's bit actually filters into discussions on the home front and the economies of sacrifice, for example, that Adrian Gregory's discussed previously. So officers' con- concepts of duty don't actually change in the same way during the war. Uh, and this is partly because of the way that the military itself defines the duty of officers, which doesn't change substantively. Um, commissions are still offered in the same way. And actually, they create a direct link between an officer and the monarch. Um they, they stem from the court of St. James, and they make it very clear that the officer's duty, particularly to his men, is infinite. Um, and this filters into the way that officers themselves conceive of their duty. And I, I actually think it a points to become quite a huge emotional strain upon the officers, but they genuinely believe that they, they, they have a duty sometimes until death, not always until death, to their men and to the military. And this actually filters into the experiences of even the supposedly anti-war war poets. So Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen, when they go back to the Western Front, it's because of this perceived infinite duty to their men, rather than anything else. And this also influences the way that officer tra- officers are trained during the war. Um, and I mean, I'm sure everybody listening knows that officers were called temporary gentlemen, which gives you that indication of the way that actually, while the military was willing to adapt its approach to rank and file, it didn't necessarily do the same thing when it came to the officers, whether or not they were actually in the new army or in the
0: professional forces. Alex, so what do you conclude about soldier motivation and, and morale during the conflict? So there are, I guess, certain
1: levels to this, or a few different levels to this. One of the key questions I wanted to ask during my thesis was whether or not the British army actually ever experienced a, a moment of crisis when it came to soldiers morale and motivation. So I'll, I'll start there, I think. And I look at three periods that have tended to be seen as moments of crisis in the secondary literature. So the end of 1914, well, retreat of Mons to the end of 1914, the aftermath of the Battle of the Somme, and that period stretching from Passchendaele through to the German offensives. And what I conclude is that where there is a real crisis on both the individual and the institutional scale, it is in that period 1917, 1918. And this is explained both through uh, a more general military history of that period so obviously 1917 it's very hard to categorize that as a success Um, the Passchendaele uh, campaign was was one that exhausted and hugely demoralized the troops but also the wider context of the war was one that didn't paint a very rosy picture for soldiers in, uh, in, in that year and the German successes in, in on the Eastern Front for example um, combined with the fact that the year before they'd completely removed Romania from the war uh, had really played a part in soldiers starting to question whether or, not, whether or not the war was winnable and I think this is the key um, to at least my individual perspective on morale is that the English infantrymen that I studied were generally willing to endure most things so long as they continued to see the war as something that could and should be won and obviously perceptions of German aggression play a huge role here but equally it's a sense that actually that they were on the front foot in many of the years that the next year would likely bring victorious peace and it's this this concept of victorious peace that basically recurs through the soldiers' documents and actually exists in many of the well the only censorship reports that we've we've got left. And what you find both in the soldiers' documents themselves and the censorship reports is that actually this starts to falter in the summer and autumn, uh, the summer and autumn, and moving into the winter of uh, 1917. What you start to see is soldiers beginning to question whether or not we shouldn't, as a British state, start pursuing um, a negotiated peace. And this is a huge shift, which stems fundamentally from the belief that the war was not winnable. Interestingly though, it's not from a perspective that the war is something that is there to be lost, Um, But it's something that suggests that the soldiers begin to believe that the war on the Western Front in particular cannot be won. And therefore, the only way for peace to be achieved, and it may not be a lasting peace, is through a negotiated settlement with the enemy. So what changes in sort of, I suppose, March 1918? Uh, March 1918, I think, and I'm not the first person to suggest this, I think David Englander and and David Stevenson um, have both indicated this in their research, but I look at it in a little bit more detail, is actually the Germans themselves changed the soldiers' perspective. And this isn't the entire story. It seems like over the winter period, um, what rest soldiers were able to have also played a part and at least uh, removing some of the pessimism. But what really happens is on the 21st of March, the Germans show British soldiers and English soldiers, in my case, that the war is something that could be lost um, by <laughs> engaging in, a, in a, an offensive which pushes the British army to its absolute limits. It reengages this idea that the Germans are not only expansionists, but what they also might threaten the soldiers way of life. And this goes back to the fact that it's it's in those early days, 1914, when it seems like the Germans might win the war, that you have the highest levels of recruitment. Uh, it's this defensive patriotism is re-engaged as suddenly it seems that actually the Germans might push them back to the coast. Oh, and the Germans therefore might actually then threaten England um, and its territory and its peoples and fundamentally the people's families. And you you find soldiers uh, often retrospectively because we don't have. Uh, and we have unfortunately little in terms of de- li- diaries and letters from the individuals during uh, the the spring offensives. But what you do start to see is soldiers thinking, well, actually, we need to we need to fight because what we might end up doing is all of the destruction that we're seeing here in France and Belgium might be transplanted onto Kent, onto Cambridge, onto London, um, and it reengages the the absolute necessity of fighting a defensive war and reminds the soldiers as, as well after several years of uh of being on the offensive that the germans are the aggressor and i think that's really fundamental so
0: alex where can people read more about your research
1: um well there are, there are a few places i've got a chapter in a recent book published by routledge um which was edited by some very good scholars at oxford which is uh called uh, wartime first of War perspectives on temporality I've got a chapter in there which actually looks at this idea of hope and victorious peace. Um, And actually you can find that on Routledge's website because it was released as part of their centenary collection um, in in a Routledge free book. What you will also find, in hopefully in the next couple of months, I will have an article out with War on History, which looks at this relationship with home through the prism of postcards. It's called The War Imagined. Um, and it essentially looks at the relationship that soldiers nurtured with the home front through this really important medium, which was postcards. Something I think that we sometimes uh, undervalue as historians, but actually it's pretty much the, the primary form of Edwardian mass media at the time. I've also just completed another article, which I'm hoping to publish in the near future, which looks at this uh, defensive patriotism, um, which will focus on how Englishmen uh, perceived of home and how this then helped them rationalise the war. And then lastly, this is a long time in the future, but hopefully it happens. I'm trying to turn my thesis, uh, which is called Making Sense for the Western Front, English infantrymen's morale and perception of crisis, into a monograph. Um, And hopefully that will be with you in the next couple of years, if everything goes to plan. Alex, thank you very much
0: for your time. No problem. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition.